In 1922, Hiru Unada was born in Japan, and he was from a long line of warriors. He, he could trace his lineage back to the samurais. Hiru, like many in his family, at the age of 18, he entered into the army, and that was just one year before Japan would enter World War II. Hiru showed exceptional ability in some ways of survival and guerrilla warfare. And because of this, on December 26th of 1944, Hiru was sent to a small island in the Philippines with orders to withstand and hold the Allied forces as long as possible. When his position and his crew were attacked, they all dispersed into the woods. Heru's remaining platoon gave themselves up, and Heru planted himself deep in the jungle to regroup his strength and continue on his orders from the emperor. The Imperial Japanese Army surrendered to the Allies aboard the USS Missouri on September 2nd, 1945. But unfortunately, that news never made its way properly to Heru. And for 29 years... Heru continued his guerrilla warfare campaign in the jungles of this small island in the Philippines. Back in his homeland, he became somewhat of a, of a folk hero. And a young man named Norio Suzuki made it his mission to travel and find Heru, to bring him back. And so Norio went to these islands and he searched for some time until one day he came across a very wary Heru who was still wearing his uniform. Norio's first words to Haru are recorded as this, Onada-san, the emperor and the people of Japan, we are worried about you. Haru told Norio that he would never lay down his arms until he was ordered to by his commanding officer, which is how, not long after that, a parade of Japanese military officers ended up in those very jungles there in the small island in the Philippines to find Heru and re relieve him of his duty. And here's a, here's a photo of Heru. 29 years after the end of the war, he is surrendering his still sharp ceremonial sword to the king of Philippines in return for his pardon. I mean, we hear a story like that and there is so many wild details. There's so many places where it's just so fascinating to us, isn't it? But my, what a disconnect to our lives here and now in this place. It's hard to even imagine how a story like that could have an impact on it. The details, the, the drama, uh, they're, they're fascinating, but, but how does it affect us? I mean, this is, it's a tale of faithfulness and perseverance. Hmm. You know, that's exactly the way that we connect with today's topic. We're talking today about Noah's Ark. You know, we are here at the orchard, we, we take the word of God as, we're, as we get to it. We are working our way through Genesis. We just got done with John. So we're working through Genesis, taking it as it comes. And here we find ourselves at the story of Noah's Ark. And, and we're going to dive into this, this flood narrative with these details and these fascinating things over there. But I want to just raise forward three elements from the life of Noah. That no matter the, the generations that have gone by, no matter the ancient culture that we read about today, no, no matter the, the, the details that seem just too fantastic for us, no matter all those things, I'm going to raise three elements of Noah's faith. That today, that now, 
can have an impact on your faith and your life. Noah's life teaches us some things that we can leave this room, or if you're connecting with us uh, somewhere else or on podcasts, you can leave this time a different person with different faith. And so with that, you can turn to Genesis 6 or look up on the screens or scroll with me. God is not happy because humanity has done what humanity does. It says this, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. He saw that everything they thought of or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry that he made them and put them in, on the earth. It broke his heart. A pattern begins to come. What we're looking for in Genesis, and what I, what I want to show you through this series, is patterns that come forward that, that, that we see in Genesis that continue through the Bible that are still true now. And one of those patterns we see here, it's the pattern of God's culture, God's way, and the culture of the world and how they counteract each other. You see, when it comes to the culture of our world, our society, left to itself apart from God, it will do something. It will begin to call what is good evil and begin to call what is evil good. You see this over and over in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in history and we see it in our society today. God has said there are some things that are good, virtuous, and noble. And the culture, they can begin to call those things antiquated, traditional, and eventually, bad. The culture begins to do some other things because God said there's some things that, that we should leave, we should not do. There's some things that aren't good for us. There's some things that could be even evil. They're, they harm us. They harm our society, and we should not join in those things. And the culture left to its, this isn't just our culture. I'm not just saying this about our culture. I'm saying this throughout culture. Culture apart from God does the same thing over and over and over again. What it does on those things that God says to leave that over there, it begins to, to you know, to say that that might be more important. It might, it's, it's, it's edgy. Not only that, it begins to normalize those things, that God says we should avoid. You see, God being created us in his image, he's all-knowing. He loves us. And because he created us, he knows what's best for us, his image bearers. He knows what it, what it is that can bless our lives, our relationships, our, our hearts, our souls. So when he says, I'm just going to give you an example, um, don't have intimacy outside of marriage, it's not because he's some cosmic killjoy, like trying to harsh our mellow, we're making sure that no one has fun. It's not at all. You see, when he says something like that, it's because he's our creator. He knows that he designed humanity, his image bearers, to be most fulfilled when they're in the intimacy of a covenant relationship. He knows that outside of that covenant, when we, when we leave that, there are pitfalls, wounds, insecurities, consequences that he doesn't want for his image bearers. Meanwhile, the culture tries to normalize things that he said to avoid, creating pathways that are acceptable and eventually even celebrated in the culture. Again, throughout time. And soon what God said to avoid um, is not something that anybody avoids at all. It's something we encourage and we celebrate. And the covenant that God designed us for this very thing that he said was good becomes antiquated, traditional, worthless, and is under attack. This is the pattern of humanity uh, and godliness and culture and the battle that it's gone through. And we'll see this pattern. Again, this is not a commentary on American culture. It's a commentary on humanity and God and how culture goes. So in Genesis 6, we see this pattern. It's already in full bloom. One transition talks about this in Genesis 6, and it says, Every inclination of the thoughts of humanity, of the human heart, was evil. 
God's image bearers were behaving in ways that he asked them not to. The culture had degenerated into one that was base and evil where every person was convinced. They were all convinced, I will do whatever I feel like is good for me. I know that doesn't sound familiar at all. I will do whatever is good for me regardless of what others or God would say. And at the heart of that statement, at the very heart of that is something we need to know. The heart of that statement, it's saying, I am my own God. I will decide what is good. I will decide what is evil. I will decide what is right or what is wrong, unclean and clean. I will determine the path and what is good for myself. With his image bearers declaring themselves gods and declaring what is evil now good, God plans to remake the world and start over. But we see something here in verse 8. It says this, but but Noah found favor with God, with the Lord. The word favor here in Hebrew, it's most times used to, to be translated to grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And that's so important to look way back in Genesis and see that Noah, he didn't earn his way into this ark by a cosmic star chart. He needed God's grace too. That God gave grace upon him to allow him to do what he's gonna, we're going to see next. So we learn more about Noah and why God favored him. Uh, Verse 9, Noah was a righteous man. He lived rightly. He was blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Remember, I told you there were three things I want you to know from the life of Noah that can apply to your life today. The first one is that Noah walked with God. This is vital. That one sentence is is necessary for the entire rest of the narrative, what's going to happen. If Noah doesn't walk with God, I don't believe we have the rest of the story. Noah walking with God is the foundation for what we're going to see next. Because people who walk with God, something begins to happen. They take on the nature of God. When you walk with somebody long enough, you become more and more like that person. So what does it mean to walk with God? It's one of those statements where I say, go ye therefore and walk with God, and you leave here and go, how does God walk? Where does he walk? Like, what do I do? What does it mean to walk with God? It means that as you go throughout your day, you are in communication. You are in conversation with him. You're likely going through a situation right now in your life that is causing you stress. Have you asked God, what he would have you do in that situation? Have you really brought it to him and say, what should I do? Like my wife and I, we have discussed how when we were gonna move, we, we asked God, should we move? And he gave us great clarity. Not, not, not always right away. Sometimes we have to keep praying and keep asking me. He gave us great clarity in some of those situations. So, so are you conversationally bringing things to God? Like even in your business, hey, hey, hey who, who should I take this opportunity to? God's wisdom on your business and your investments is greater than anything anybody else is going to tell you. God, what should I do with my child? My child's in this strange phase. Like, God, well, you know them better than I do. What, well, what should I do for them? Walking with God is bringing conversational communication throughout your day and throughout your week. It, it, is, it is having him with you as you go through what you're going through. Listening to him. Praying reading his word and getting his wisdom, adjusting your life to what you see in his word. It's worshiping. A Jesus follower who isn't following Jesus, is it still a Jesus follower? Are they walking? You see, someone who walks with God, walks with God the way that God walks. 
saying yes to the things that are good, saying no to the things that God would have us say no to, living in ways of, of, of holiness and giving love and grace to people that we probably wouldn't give to otherwise. Walking with God is keeping in step with him where he leads us. And in the process of walking with God, you become more like him in your character, belief, and behavior. One of my favorite things to do with my, with my wife, Amy, of 12 years, 12? 12. <laughs> you know, it's just so rich, it seems like it's only just yesterday we married. I know. He's like, writing, you write that down. One of my favorite things to do is, and this is going to be groundbreaking for your marriage, is I love to take walks with my wife. And you know, different seasons with kids, we do different things. But there was a, a long season where we took a walk every day after dinner. We, we even walking yesterday. And when, when I walk with Amy, life slows down. It just does. And our love languages get to speak as we're holding hands, we're spending quality time together, and naturally we begin talking. And we talk differently on a walk than we do like across the table on a date or when the kids are around or, any, or in the kitchen when we have five minutes before. They, you, know, you know, we just talk differently on a walk. I don't know what it is. And, and the truth is that there's a principle. If you walk with someone long enough, you become more like them. It just happens, both in life and physically. Like in your, in, on your physical walks, not I don't become more physically like her, but on our physical walks, we, we, we become more like each other in character and worldview and in our hopes and our fears as we, as we talk about those, as, as, we, as we talk about our frustrations. You know, we, we discuss our kids. We discuss politics. My, my wife knows me, knows my politics, knows my hopes, knows my concerns and my dreams in a way that no one in the world does. On the planet, she's the one. I know her and she knows me and we have grown together in all these walks and all this time is, and we have learned more about each other and affected each other. When you walk with somebody through life, there's an exchange of more than just conversation. Walk with somebody long enough, you'll be more like them, which is why it's important to choose carefully and wisely who you choose to walk through life with. Both physically going on walks and who you're, you're choosing your partner and other friends to be. Let's just say this, physically, you have a, a hiking partner or a walking buddy. And, and let's, let's just make up something. I'm sure this isn't true of anybody in here. But, but that person likes to gossip. And you know whenever you go on a, your, your weekly walk with this person, you're going to hear it all. Oh, what's going on with so-and-so? Can you believe it? Like, you're going to hear it all. But um, let's say that the person you go on walks with is the person who always can find a fault in something. They just have a, they have a, a gift for finding faults. And, and they're, they're always passing on their frustration to you. And you watch and you notice. You will walk through life with somebody like that and you will find yourself going back home carrying some of that frustration. You will come, become better at finding faults in people and things. You'll get better at passing along gossip. The people we choose to walk through life with, we become more like. And so it is important to choose who you walk with. In fact, I would say choose somebody Pick somebody who you want to be more like. Pick somebody with it. When you leave that walk, you, are, you have more peace despite your frustration. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you leave going, man, I want to know God better. Like, I, I, am, I am filled up. Find those people and walk through life with them. The Bible has more to say about this on this topic, but I don't have time for it. Here's just a taste. Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. Avoid walking through life with those who call evil good and good evil. Proverbs 13, 20, walk with the wise and you'll become wise. Walk with fools and you'll get in trouble. 
intentionally pick out some wise people, some mentors, some people farther along, some people ahead of you. Walk with them. Take their wisdom. It becomes yours. If you see you're walking with fools, maybe just jot down in your notes, stop walking with, and then, you know, maybe use code. Use a code word. Yeah. It's important to note that, that Noah walked with God. Walking with God will refine your thoughts, your character, your behavior will be more like him. In fact, if you want to go study some more on this, and I would, I would challenge you to, Galatians 5, write that down and go read Galatians 5 on what it looks like in the New Testament when they're saying walking with God. Galatians 5.25 says this to finish up. Let us keep in step with the Spirit, like daily, moment to moment. God wants to inform you and give you wisdom through his word and his Spirit So we walk with God. Noah's walk with God was the foundation of everything we're about to read that happened. Again, I believe if that one sentence wasn't in there, that Noah walked with God, we wouldn't see the rest of it. So we have a wicked culture that is calling evil good and good evil. We have a holy God who's going to refine and reframe the earth. We have Noah who walks with God and receives grace from God. And then it leads us to the next important element we find in Noah's life. First, he walks with God. Second, Noah listened to God. Because God's going to start to speak. And God's speaking to you through his word, through other people, in other ways. So God's speaking, but Noah, he listened. There's another pattern we see here with Noah that we're going to continue to find throughout the Bible. Again, we start with patterns in Genesis that echo throughout the Bible. Another pattern that started in the, in the Garden of Eden that we see here with Noah is God is looking for people to partner with who will say yes to him to bring redemption to the world around them. God wants to partner with people. He's looking for women like yourself to partner with. He's looking for men like you to partner with, to bring redemption to your work, to your house, to your area code, your cul-de-sac. God wants humans who walk with him to be a redemptive force on this planet. And if you read through the Bible, you see that God chose people like King David to partner with. Wow, a king. He chose Princess Esther. He chose an immigrant like Abram. He chose a fugitive like Moses to partner with. He chose a runaway like Jonah to partner with. He chose a a prophetess like Deborah. He chose a failure like Peter. He chose a a sinner like Matthew and a murderer like Paul. And he's choosing you. In all your sin, in in all your shame, and says, oh, not me, not me. God wants to partner with you to be a redemptive force in you and through you on this planet. Noah walked with God. Noah listened to God, but Noah did one more thing. You see, as as Noah listened to God, we're going to see he begins to hear something, and I'm going to be honest, that is absolutely ridiculous by human standards. That's what he's going to hear from God. Imagine you're spending some, you you wake up and you brew some coffee and you get out the Bible and you're going to spend some time with God. And God begins to, to speak to you in the way he's about to speak to to Noah. Build an ark from cypress wood and waterproof it with pitch inside and out. Okay. Construct the decks and stalls throughout the interior. Make the boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Leave 18-inch openings on the roof, 18-inch openings, and and around the boat. Put the door on the side. Build three decks, upper, middle, lower. Look, 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 Noah, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy the earth. But I will confirm my covenant with you. So, Noah, you're going to enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. In fact, bring a pair of every animal, male and female, into the boat and keep them. Pairs of every bird and small animal that scurries, well, they will come to you. I'm going to bring them to you. And then, Noah, make sure you have enough food. That's important. 
Like th- this would literally be like you sitting down on a, having a devotion. I'm, I'm going to try this thing that Daniel said. Open, I open my journal and I want you to start praying and I want you to build a rocket ship <laughs> to Mars. Like what? 450 feet long. What? I mean, and, and we laugh, but, but when you put... We need to put ourselves in the narrative, in Noah's shoes. He's receiving this during his life because it's just a boat, right? No, no, it's not just a boat. It's an ark, and there's a huge difference we'll discuss later. But second of all, listen, when you build an ark, when you build a ship, or when you even build a boat, you build it comparable to the water it's going to be in. You know? If you're going to Beaver Lake and Marble, you need a canoe. You don't want to put a yacht in there. If you're going to Powell, get a houseboat. Like, like you, you want the boat or the ship or the ark to be comparable to the size of the water. And, and here we have this ark. It is massive. And where Noah is building it, there is nothing like that. His neighbors would walk up and go, nice boat. What's it for? Like, there's no water even any, anywhere. This, this thing can't go, this isn't going anywhere. What are you, could you imagine how they mocked him? Can you imagine how they would mock you if you started building a rocket ship in your backyard to Mars? Oh, God told me to, I gotta build a rocket ship. Like, you have to put yourself in there. They're walking up and they're like, Noah, what's the big vote for? God told me to. Just telling you. I mean, we, they mocked him. They thought he was that guy. Secondly, there's another thing that they mocked him for. It had not yet rained on the earth. At this time, it had not rained. Up until the flood, the underwater aquifers and the atmospheric vault were all that were needed. But, and if you see, you see in Genesis, before the flood, people were living for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But after the flood, the, 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 the lifespan began to go down. And people, many people believe it's because the thick atmosphere that surrounded the earth, protecting it, feeding it, all these things, um, during the flood, it was released. And that's how all that water got there. And, and it changed the atmosphere. But to this point so far, there is no rain. It has not rained yet. So Noah said, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a flood. And they're like, well, what is, how? Well, what is that? So we have Noah building an ark with no body of water around it for practical size. Noah building an ark where no one on the planet even knows what a raindrop is. How would they respond? Put yourself in this narrative. Put yourself in Noah's shoes. Do you know how much faith it took him to cut down the first tree? I'm I'm not talking about the rest of it. I'm talking about day one where he goes, okay. And he just goes and lays the ax to the first tree. How much faith that took? Based on Noah's age and the clues in the passage, we think that the the ark took over 100 years to to build. How much faith did it take for Noah to cut down that 300th tree? How much faith did it take Noah to just start on day one? For some of us, God has asked us to do some things, but we didn't get past day one. We have Noah. What about year seven? Year 50? Year 89? Now the boat's bigger. The people are walking up. Yeah, looking good, Noah. Man, this is really coming along. I mean, can you imagine? You have to imagine. How much faith? You see, in Genesis, it tells us at two separate instances. In Genesis 6.22 and 7.5, it says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. 
Noah did everything. What if that was on your tombstone? Your name, did everything God asked of him. You see, Noah walked with God. Noah listened to God. And Noah obeyed God. Noah did what God asked him. He had, he, his, his faith was just crazy enough to say, yes. He cut down that first tree. Not a rain cloud in sight. He worked and he walked with God and he obeyed to build that ark. Cut down another tree, then another. God asked him for faithfulness and obedience and Noah stayed the course for a hundred years. Again, not a rain cloud in sight. He obeyed over time with zero evidence of fulfillment for what God had asked him. I want you to put yourself in that. He obeyed God with zero evidence that there would be fulfillment for a long time. Orchard, what has God asked you to be faithful in? Where are some places God has asked you to be faithful in the past? And perhaps it just got too long. It's too hard. Life got busy, got distracted. For some of us, it's time to go back to that place where God asked us to obey Start doing it again. I know some of you here today, also, you've been faithfully praying for a, your spouse for decades. That your spouse would, would, would come to know Jesus. And it, it's gotten long. And it's gotten lonely. And you've prayed. You've prayed for them and you've been faithful. And, and there is not a rain cloud in the sky. You haven't been perfect, but you have been faithful. And like Noah, you continue to pray and love and serve in preparation. For some of you here, um, you're praying for that prodigal son or prodigal daughter who's far from you and far from God. And you've been praying for them for what seems to be a long time. And you've seen the decisions that they've made. And you've seen the decisions that, that not only hurt, hurt themselves, but break your heart. And those private tears not a rain cloud in sight. For others of us, we've been holding out that God would bring us freedom in some areas that we feel trapped in vice and addiction. For others of us, we have, we have, we gotta be honest, we have some heart's desires in this life. It could be that you would have a family. It could be that your child would come back. It could be that you would have a child. Whatever your heart desire would be, you know it. And you've been praying and hoping with not a rain cloud in sight. You see, Noah obeyed when there was no rain. He continued in faith and perseverance when there was no clouds. And he kept, he kept the faith when the years went on and it was longer than he ever would have hoped. And I want to make a very important distinction when it comes to his obedience versus other obedience. Because obedience can, can look the same on the outside. You can have two people making the same decisions, but for very different reasons. And the internal attitude of their hearts is completely different. God asks us to obey him, to say yes to the things that he's asked us to say yes to. And say no to things he has to say no to. We have one person who obeys God out of joy and out of love. But you can have another person who obeys God out of duty 
and religiosity. And do you want to know the difference? Do you know what makes somebody want to obey God and, and say no to something because the, out of love and, and joy? And the other person who just like out of willpower says no. The difference is Noah walked with God. Walking with God is the fuel of obedience. People who walk with God tend to obey God out of love and devotion. People who walk with religion obey out of legalism and duty. It may be the exact same decision they're making, but the internal reality is vastly different. See, some of us, we need to change the rhythm of our, our walk. Stop obeying out of religious duty and begin to walk with God, communicating daily as we go through our life, becoming more like him and seeing that we are obeying out of love and saying no to the things he has to say no to out of love and joy instead of out of willpower and grit. Relationship always trumps religion. Relationship with God leads to obedience and faithfulness. Religion leads to legalistic obedience and emptiness. And in a place like this, whether you're joining us online or in your car, we can have people listening to the same message and one is walking in religion and one is walking in relationship. We can't think just because we're, we have Jesus that, there's no, that we're not doing things out of duty and emptiness and religion. He says, come walk with me. Come follow me. If you're not walking with God in your daily life, through life, chances are there's some places where you are, your faith is brittle and your willpower is cracking or it's gone and you have the cycle of, oh, okay, I guess I'll go back and try harder. And you get in here and you feel terrible about it. Oh, that's a relationship with God. He says, my son, my daughter, you are loved. Do you know how much I love you? If you have a child, imagine how much you love your child. It's just like double it. I love you. I forgive you. Walk in freedom. Follow me. Do what, I, do what I'm asking you, not because you just have to, but because I love you, because it's best for you. If you're finding areas in your life that you're struggling to obey God, you can double your efforts and leave here and go, that's it. I'm going to white knuckle this. I'm going I'm to try harder than ever. Or you can leave here and go, I'm going to invest myself into my, my walk with God. I'm going to move as, as close as I can with him. I'm going to listen. I'm going to read. I'm going to pray. I'm going to worship. I'm going to change the rhythms of my life. And from that overflow, you'll find obedience looking differently. Bottom line, it's your relationship with God that is the fuel for your devotion and your passion and your obedience and your peace. And, and for some of you, that's what you're going to leave today with, that you need to go out and walk with God closer. Perhaps for the first time, begin to like, what does it even look like? And perhaps you, you find out by saying, asking another person in here, can I walk with you and we can talk about this? Like, choose people wisely. Well, you know the story of the flood, right? Many of you know the story. Spoilers. It happened. He was building this boat and, you know, nailing. People were laughing at him and there's no water nearby. And, and then one day, old uh, Eleazar, his next door neighbor, was outside and felt the strangest thing on his forehead. What is that? And it began to rain. And God himself shut the door of the ark. 
And the ark rose above the torrent below and buoyantly stayed above the sinking depths. And it carried Noah and his family safely through the tribulation to what was next. I told you it's important to know that it's an ark, not a boat. And the reason is this. There's some key differences. An ark has no rudder. An ark has no human captain. You're not steering the ark. You're just in it. (laughs) An ark's not to get you from point A to point B. It's just to keep you safe through it. An ark has a purpose to float above the waves and carry whatever is in it safely through. There's three arcs in the Bible, but only two mentioned by name. Noah's ark is the first one right here that saved him from disaster and carried him and his family safely through. And then we have Moses as an infant. He was placed in what they called it, an ark. He was placed in an ark. His mother wanted to save him from the government that was slaughtering the babies around there. And so, so she had no other choice because he was crying. So she put, them, he put him, she put him in an ark, this little woven ark, and released him down the river. No rudder, no captain, just an ark safely carrying whatever was in it above what was below and through something to salvation. But there is another ark in the Bible You see, Jesus is the final ark. Now, I've told you that the Old Testament and New Testament connect in some amazing ways. Jesus is the final ark. And those who place their faith in Jesus will be carried through the raging tumult of life and death. The ark of Jesus will see those who are in him safely through to the other side. And an ark in the Bible is always a means of salvation and redemption. You don't follow Jesus in in religion and then captain your ark and steer it spiritually. No, 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 no. Here's the thing about, here's the thing about that's different about following Jesus. It's not by willpower. It's by faith and surrender. That by faith you say, Jesus, you are my ark. I'm putting my faith in you as my savior and I am surrendering to you. Jesus gave up his life and came back to life so that you could place your faith in him. That we would surrender ourselves to him. And Jesus promises that if you're in him, he will see you safely to the other side. Now, I told you that the Old Testament and New Testament connect, but I'm not just saying that Jesus and Noah connect symbolically. Jesus spoke about this from his very lips. Listen to this. Matthew 24, when the son of man returns, that's Jesus referring to himself. So he would say, when I, when I return, when I come back, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets, parties, weddings, right up to the moment Noah entered the boat. People didn't realize it was gonna happen until the flood came and swept them away. This is the way it will be when I return. Two men are gonna be working in a field. The one who believes in me, he will be gone. And the other will be left in that field. Two women will be grinding flour. One's going to be taken and the other left. So you too must keep watch. For you don't know what day your Lord is coming. What does this mean? It means that someday Jesus is coming back for those who have placed their faith in him for salvation. In the time of Noah, people were going about their lives. Just going about it. Completely unaware of what was next. Completely unaware Two men working in a field on the day of the rapture of Jesus and the one who knows Jesus will be taken up. 
the other left. In the time of Noah, God knew the day and the time. Noah didn't. Noah was only supposed to faithfully work to prepare for what was ahead. And the people of Noah's time, they saw what he's doing. And in in another place in in the New Testament, it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, which means he was witnessing why he was working. He was preaching them and telling them. So he's working on this boat and telling them about it, and they thought it was nonsense. And then one day, it started to rain. They had chosen to walk away from God during their life and he left them to their decision in death. Jesus said it's gonna be the same way. That like Noah, many of us should, we we should be preparing and faithfully doing what God has asked us to do. And there are gonna be people who hear this and people who hear you who are gonna think it's nonsense. You might as well be building an ark for all they care. You're telling me what? But someday, Jesus is returning And those of us who have placed our belief and faith in him, we will be carried on an ark above the tribulations, safely to the other side. Before I move on to anything else, I just get the sense that there there is someone, there's some people listening or with us today who has never made the decision that, hey, listen, I want to believe in Jesus. I want to place my faith in Jesus. I want want him in my life. And if, if that's you, you just pray this with me. Say, Jesus, I need you. I know you died and rose again. Fill me. Take my sin. Take my life. But I want to close to focus on a very intentional, specific group of people in this room or listening. Because you've been waiting a really long time. You've been waiting a really long time for God to come through for you in some areas. You get what it means to be a Noah because you've been praying for something for decades, years, however long it's been. You've been faithfully praying for your spouse or your child or to have a child or to see those promises and those desires of your heart fulfilled. But it's been a long time. It's been a real long time. And some of you, it's scary to even begin to hope again because hope is dangerous. Get your hopes up just to be disappointed again. Noah persevered when there was not a cloud in sight and many of you have been persevering without a cloud in sight. There's been no reign of fulfillment in your life. I wanna pray a prayer of blessing over you as we sing that we would see the reign of God, the fulfillment of those things we've been praying for come true. For those of you who have been asking God to move in your marriage with your spouse, that we would see the reign of God and we would see his promises fulfilled. For those of you who've been praying for your child who is so far from God, that you would see the rain clouds on the horizon as it is fulfilled. For those of you playing, praying for the desires of your heart, to have a child, to have, to have a family, that whatever your desire would be that you have been praying and longing for, that we would see rain on the horizon, and we would see the fulfillment of God's move. For those of you in here today who've been praying for God to free you from vice and addiction or whatever it is that holds you in bondage, and it's been so long, 
and there's not been a rain cloud or a break in sight that we would begin to see on the horizon that a storm is coming and the fulfillment of freedom is on its way. For those of you who've had great loss in your life, wounded so deeply in your heart, and you've been asking God to meet you in that spot, and you continue to move through life with that wound, we are praying today to see the fulfillment of God in those places, that we would see rain on the horizon. send the rain of heaven, the rain of fulfillment, the rain, Father, that we have been praying for, we have been searching for, the hope, the healing, the freedom. I pray that you would send it like Noah. I pray that today we would see on the horizon the fulfillment of your promises. I pray that you give new hope and new healing this very day. The Lord, we would feel the rain of your fulfillment in those places. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. prayer for you is that you would walk with God. If you hear anything from me as a, as a pastor, that you would begin to immerse yourself to find the God whose character and nature is in his word, to pray, to listen, to worship. You walk with God. And I'm also expecting and hoping that for many of the prayers that we prayed today, that the rain would come, that, in, that we would see God's goodness and his kindness as he fulfills those. Orchard, we're going to sing one last song. Would you stand with me as we celebrate what God has done in us, what he has done through us, and that no matter what we've been through, that there was Jesus. <laughs>